Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning. What's up? All right. My name is Joshua Cepeda. I'm a member here at Hope, for those who don't know me. I'm also a representative of the native Brooklynites in our community. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwood neighborhood of Brooklyn on Ocean Avenue and Avenue Y. I went to school right by Flatbush Junction, which is right next to Brooklyn College. Um, if you don't know where that is, that's fine. I'm just uh, giving you a sense of where I'm from. Um, I spent all my time in Sunset Park breakdancing with friends, and that's where I met my wife, and that's where we now live with our three kids. Shanna, Julie, and Joshua. That's a little bit about me. Um, if you get a chance, or if I, we get a chance to talk, I would love to get to know you more if I haven't already. But I'm just excited to be here, and I consider it a great privilege to be able to share with you and continue our sermon series on divine sacraments. But first, a little bit about my relationship with sacraments. Um, as we've understood sacraments, they're originally, or they come from a, a Catholic idea. The Catholics have seven sacraments. And for me, there's a little trouble there because I grew up as a Latin American Protestant. My parents came to faith in Central America and Honduras specifically. And the Honduras, and the, well, up until recently probably, it's, it's been predominantly Catholic. And if you know anything about the relationship between Catholicism and Latin America, it holds a deep place nationally and culturally. To be Latin or Hispanic is to be Catholic. It's one and the same. To be a Protestant in Latin America is to be an other. My mom tells me stories of how when she converted to, to, to uh, she became a Christian and started attending an evangelical church, how her mother would give her an insurmountable amount of chores to do so that she would get tired and not want to go to church, not be able to read her Bible, not be able to pray. My mother would tell me how she would at night wait till everyone was asleep and then under her uh, covers with a flashlight read her Bible and listen out for her, her mother who would constantly come in checking in on her. Uh, my grandmother viewed Protestantism as fanatics, as people who are emotional and, and pagan and kind of lost. And so in my house growing up, Catholicism wasn't something that we talked about. It was something that was viewed as the other or kind of the tension. Catholic ideas didn't make their way into our home. They were kind of scary or, or strange. So that's one thing, you know, sacraments wasn't something we talked about at home. The other thing is I grew up in uh, a time when the conversation in Christianity was religion versus relationship, which is... Uh, Basically, was summed up by, I think his name was Jefferson Beek. He made this video, uh, Why I Hate Religion or Love Jesus. And he summed up his, this entire feeling of a generation that we were tired of these rituals and these cold and dead traditions that the church has been doing for so many years. We want relationship. And so I remember when I gave my life to Christ at 13, the message that I heard wasn't about the atonement. It wasn't theology. It was that God wants a relationship with me. God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. That's what the pastor said. And I remember hearing that and thinking that relationship is what matters. So growing up, religion, dead, I don't want any of that. I want relationship. But what I lost is that the beauty of our faith and our tradition and our history is that Christians throughout all time have been trying to cultivate this relationship with God. And much of our traditions have been lost sometimes because we've lost the sense of what they mean and what their significance is. And so I love what Russell's done with this sermon series with divine sacraments, you know, looking at moments in our life where God is actively speaking, because that's what a sacrament is. The way I've come to understand it is that a sacrament or a sacred act becomes sacred, not when it's commissioned by a church or when it's made official by a religion, but when it awakens within us an awareness 
of God in the every moments of life. Uh, David G. Benner wrote a book called The Gift of Self-Discovery. And in the book, he talks about meeting God in the everyday. And this is what he says, taking from Richard Rohr, he says, Richard Rohr reminds us that we cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. This is the core of the spiritual journey, learning to discern the presence of God. The truth is that God is to be found in all things. The presence of God is to be found in all things. And what we lack is awareness. And so what I wanna say this morning and what we've been saying throughout our series is that sacraments are a way in which we become awakened to God's presence, we become aware of him. But also what happens is we become aware of that he's not just there presently in the room. You know, I, I thought about it as I was preparing for this sermon like this, that God isn't like a uh, security camera that's posted at a door, that's viewing people going in and out and gathering data. He's present, but he's not in relationship. God is more like the doorman who notices us every morning, who says good morning, who says good evening, who takes in information of us, but becomes and gains an awareness of us, a knowledge of us. J.I. Packard wrote a book called Knowing God. And in the book, he spends the entire book actually about this idea of coming to know God. And what he says in the beginning though, is that the underlying truth in knowing God is not that we come to knowledge of him, but we come to knowledge, we come to an awareness that we are known by him. This is how he puts it. What matters supremely therefore is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. This is momentous knowledge. There's unspeakable comfort, the sort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good. When we become aware of God's presence, we become aware that he's taking knowledge of us, that we're known by him, and we become aware that he's actively doing things for our good because he loves us. And we've come to understand this as as the tagline to our, our sermon series, that these are divine moments of death and resurrection, that God is speaking to us about things in our life that aren't producing life, maybe. And I don't think we have a hard time with this idea. We do a lot of self-evaluation, I feel, as, as, a, as a culture. We constantly look at what's good and what's bad, what needs to stop and what needs to start. Sometimes we realize that a relationship we started, you know, a romantic relationship may need to die. It's not producing life. Or maybe another relation, financial one, or, or a friendship or something, we do this a lot, we self-evaluate, but we also look at the positive things that sometimes there's habits and vices and other things that need to die. We recognize that some things in our life aren't always producing what we want to see in our life, but rather bringing forth death or the opposite effect. And so what we're saying this morning, what I'm saying this morning is that God desires to use sacraments to awaken an awareness in us of him, but also of what he's saying to us that he has taken knowledge of us, he knows us, he sees things that sometimes are hard for us to see, and he wants to bring us to a place of awareness so that he can show us what's not producing life and how we can produce life. And he does that through that process of death, dying to self, and living for him. And so this morning I'm, I was given the, the task of talking about work as a divine sacrament. Now, when I talk about work this morning, I'm not talking about merely just the nine to five day-to-day -day grind, even though that is part of it. I'm talking about anything and everything that we have to work at or do, anything that causes us labor or struggle, anything that takes up our time, our energies, and our resources, everything we put our hand to. And the reason why is because everything that we do, we want to believe has meaning. 
We want to believe that no matter what it is, whether it's uh, something that's not important or doesn't feel important to us, or something that is, is meaningful. We don't want to feel like we're wasting our time. Can I get an amen? I don't want to feel like I'm wasting my time. Um, <laughs> and so we're committed to the state of defining meaning or giving meaning to the things that we're doing. And this morning we're going to read a passage of scripture where, where the Apostle Paul talks about his missionary journey, one of his missionary journeys. And he's, you're going to see this kind of meaning that he applies to it that's very similar to our own drive and passion to find meaning in our life. But I love what he's going to do in this passage. He's going to take us through a series of kind of ups and downs, kind of fighting with our own feelings about why we do the work that we do or why we apply meaning the way that we do. And so we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read 12 verses. Then we're going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to finish and share what I feel God is saying through this, uh, this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to 12. It's going to be up there. And here we go. For you, yourselves, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. And so right off the bat, Paul is, is reminiscing and he's reminding the Thessalonians about his coming to them. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17, Paul's second missionary journey, how he arrives at uh, Thessalonica and, and the work that he does there. And right off the jump, Paul expresses an idea that I, that I said that we all express in our work, that we don't want to feel that our work is in vain. Verse 1, he says, for you know that our coming was not in vain. No one wants to believe that their work is vanity. And so we take precautions to make sure that our work is actually valuable. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't take those same precautions, you know, whereas we might, you know, take a trip based on data, based on information, based on word of mouth. Paul makes all his decisions based on a belief, a simple belief that the work he's gonna do, that the investment he's making in people will produce fruit. And he does this without all this data, without this collection. Paul literally goes on journeys based on feeling a deep-held belief that his work is valuable and it's not in vain. And because it's not in vain, Paul is motivated to persevere and endure. Verse 2, he says that he came to Thessalonica after suffering persecution, and this didn't stop him. Many of us, I've, I remember growing up hearing that if you try something once or twice, it doesn't work, you, you kill it, it dies. You know, I was told by a friend one time that you're, you're investing six months into a relationship and it's not going anywhere, you end it. Paul's very much different. 
He encounters persecution on his way to them. And he says, this didn't stop me. This emboldened me. We had boldness, he says. Me and my friends had boldness to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. When we have a deep sense that our work is meaningful, we persevere. I remember hearing a quote, and it was hard to understand when I was younger, that work isn't work unless it's work. I don't know if you followed, because it took me a while. This idea that work isn't really work unless we have to work at it, you know? And anything that comes easy isn't worth doing. I remember one listening to one of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and talking about prayer, he says that don't count yourself difficult, don't count yourself out when prayer is too difficult. He says count yourself out when prayer is too easy. He wants us to get into our mind that anything that's worth value is worth working for. And anything that we believe is meaningful, we'll work at. And that's what Paul's expressing right now about his, his desire to come to them, his desire to do work, his desire to be present. He doesn't want, he's not, it's not in vain, and it's worth the conflict. And he's so passionate about his work in verse 3 that he says that he's committed to protecting that work so that it's not corrupted. So it doesn't come with error or impurity, he says, or any attempt to deceive. That, that, those two words, error and impurity, he uses those words differently in other places. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about peddlers, people who use people's wants or take advantage of people's wants. And he says, we're not like them. We came with sincerity. And so here he talks about as being corrupt, that this idea of taking advantage of people's wants, of a work that takes advantage of others, isn't what he's about. It's the same feeling that sometimes we have with our work when we want to make sure that nobody can say anything about our work. We do everything to the best of our ability so that if we ever get, you know, um, evaluated or criticism comes against us, we know we're covered. I had an interesting experience when I was uh, about 21. I was working at a bank, and long story short, the bank had let me go. There was a dispute against something, a transaction I'd handled with a client, and the client felt that uh, I had done something wrong. And so they investigated it. They found that I had done nothing wrong, but the client was so persistent that they said, listen, something has to go and, and we have to let you go. And so I was like, cool, unemployment, yeah. You know, I didn't get, you know, they fired me. I didn't get, you know, I didn't lose my job. So I was super excited, went home, filed for unemployment. Seriously, I filed for unemployment, first thing I did. And I was like, I get to be chill for a couple weeks. But then I got a letter in the mail. And the letter was that I was denied unemployment that, that uh, the bank had filed for misconduct, that I had done something wrong, I had violated their, their terms, or, or I had done wrong to the client. And so I went to court to fight it. And I sat before the judge on Christmas Day. Yeah, I believe it was Christmas Day. Or oh, the day before Christmas, no, I'm sorry. Christmas, yeah, the day before Christmas. So there was nobody there but me and him. <laughs> and I remember his face. And so the first thing I told him was, I'm sorry, and he had, uh, you know, we have to be here right now. And he looked at me and he was just, you know, he didn't want to hear anything. And so he was going through his spiel, reading his stuff to me. And it was so tense in that room. And he began to ask me questions about what happened and, and ask me why I did what I did. And so I left the, I left the room about an hour later and I felt completely uh, broken. I was like, this isn't going to go well. You know, this whole situation didn't work out for my benefit. You know, uh, this company's huge. I'm small. They got a lot to invest in this. This guy's not happy being here, you know, like, and, and it's all my fault. But about two days later, I received a letter saying that he was honoring my unemployment, that he found that I had not committed misconduct, I had committed a good faith error. That what I had done was I'd used everything in my ability to provide the best kind of service to this person, but it didn't work out. That I made a mistake, not because I was being malicious or manipulative, but because I was 
trying to do the best I could, but it just wasn't enough. And so he honored my claim. And I remember feeling so uh, overjoyed, not simply because I got unemployment, but because I felt that I had done the right thing, that the work that I was committed to doing, I didn't want to be someone who was taking advantage of others. I wanted to use everything that I was taught to do right. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that he wants that kind of commitment to his work. That's the kind of commitment we want to our work, that nobody could say anything because we're pure and uncorrupt, because our work is not taking advantage of others, it's actually for the service and benefit of others. But what's interesting in verse four is that Paul's motivation for why he does this isn't the same as ours. It isn't so that nobody could speak evil of us or isn't so that we could have a clean record or so that we could uh, protect our identity. He says he does this to please God and not to please men. Now this idea here, when I got to this, this, uh, this verse, was brought a lot of tension. Because when I've heard this verse growing up in the Christian church, this verse was used as a means to justify the work that churches did, meaning we do our work inconsiderate of others, only considering God. And I found that really strange because prior to, or ironic at least, that the verse before, Paul says he doesn't want his work to be corrupted. He doesn't want to misuse it or abuse it. He doesn't want to take advantage or deceive. He wants to do right by others. And then the next verse, he says, it's because he wants to please God. And what he means by that is God, that Paul is so committed to pleasing God that he's willing to do right by others, even if taking advantage of someone is what they want. Now, that might seem strange to you right now, but I'll, this is how I came to understand it. When I was in college, I took economics, and I, it was the first time that I understood how, what determines prices you know, in our society. I always thought it was profits and loss, or like cost of, of things. Like if it's cost, it's, it must, it's expensive because it must cost a lot of money. Or the price went up because, you know, something changed. And those are factors. But what I learned is really the determining factor between prices is demand. The fact that there's someone out there who's willing to pay this price. And if there's someone out there willing to pay this price, then they're gonna sell it for that price. Which means if it costs me a dollar to make a product and someone wants it for $20, I'm selling it for 20. I'm not selling it for 10. And when I learned that, it was shocking because now I, I felt that if someone, if I'm, let's say me and a person are competing for a product, we want something, and that person's willing to pay more money, this person's gonna go with the more money and not with providing the service. And I found that very strange that this was how like, economics works. Why one day something could be worth $2 and the next day it's worth 10. And I see that a lot in my neighborhood. There was a, there's a bodega that opened up about a block away from us. And they've been trying to put a store there for years. And so this, this is the new one. And I went inside and it's a, it's a Mexican bodega. And so they have tons of like, you know, Mexican uh, uh, foods like tortas, semitas, you know, tacos, burritos, you know, and, and all that stuff I love. I'm, growing up, my mother told me I should have been Mexican because I love Mexican food. And so I went in there to see how much, what the prices were. And I was shocked because growing up in Brooklyn, I'm very familiar with this and how much it's worth, you know? And I saw the prices were astronomically different. Then, what, then if I went five blocks over to a Mexican bakery and got the same thing. But I began to realize that as the neighborhood was changing, as other businesses were opening up and they were selling their product for more, people were paying for it. So this business was only capitalizing on the demand. But for me, I felt like it took advantage of the fact of people who have been here forever, who actually were the reason why they opened up this store in the first place. But because there's someone who wants something, we sell it for that price. What Paul's saying in verse four is that his desire to please God is so great, it's not that he doesn't consider people, it's that he loves people so much that even if, it, if he could take advantage of their, de of their demand, he's not going to. He's not going to take advantage of people. 
because he loves God who tests his heart. Why he's doing, why he's working and why he's involved isn't for himself, isn't to gain a profit or to gain a sense of, of grandeur. It's to meet urgent needs. And this is where I believe that work becomes a divine sacrament. When our work has the potential to display the glory of God and how we serve others. And that's what Paul's talking about. That we love God so much that we love people just as much. That we don't forsake people for God. This isn't a license for us to do whatever we want because we feel we're on some holy mission. This is saying that if I love God this much, I'm going to love people. I remember one of the first sermons I heard Russell preach when uh, Hope Brooklyn was starting and he talked about that, that uh, when Jesus is, is uh, preaching one of his sermons and he says that if you have an offering to give but your, your relationship with your brother isn't right, he says, leave the offering, go to your brother. And I never thought about it until Russell preached. I should let you know how great a preacher he is. Um, <laughs> Uh, I never thought about it before that God is so concerned with your relationship with someone else more than it is what you're doing for him. In fact, if you really love him, you'll do right by your brother. I love uh, Jonathan Edwards. He's one of my favorite theologians. And he says, talking about Jesus's view of love, he says that love that wants something from someone isn't really love at all. And I'd say this morning that work that desires to only gain from others isn't work at all that what Paul and, and is, is espousing is that God's view of work or the way that God works in, in our lives is not merely to gain something from us, but it's to give something to us. And you'll see that in the, in the following verses because he does a comparison, verses five and six, he talks about things that, uh, that ways that he could get things from people. He says, I didn't come seeking words of flattery, praise from people. I didn't come seeking greed, money from people. I didn't come seeking glory from people. And I love that clause again, though I could have made demands as an apostle of Christ, which means that there's actually things Paul could have asked for from people, but he doesn't. What I've learned about the gospel is that the gospel isn't about pulling your cards and saying, I have the, the right to this, or I deserve this, or I'm entitled to this. The gospel is laying your cards down. It's saying that though I can make demands, though I can take something from my, I'm entitled or I could do it, I'm not going to. And that's strange for us in our culture. Because again, with the idea of supply and demand, if people want it for that price, and I'm gonna give it to them that price. If this is what it takes to make it, I'm gonna do it. But Paul says this kind of thinking corrupts our work. It changes our work. Our work is no longer good, if I could say that. If it's not in the service of others. Verses seven and eight, he says the exact opposite. Instead of being taken from people, he talks about wanting to give to people. He says, I was desiring to be gentle among you. He wants to have concern for others. He says, I was so affectionately desirous for you. He wants to, have he wants to give love to others. And I love that last part that I, did, I wanted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, my own self. In other translations, my own life. That's interesting that Paul isn't so in love with the gospel, so compassionate about it that he just wants that. He actually goes even further. I want to share with you the gospel, but also my own life. That this is the kind of work I'm committed to where it's not just I'm here to do a job and go. I'm here to do a job and give you my life. Because you've become so valuable to us, he says. This is very different from the way that we do work. I have a, a coworker who says 
that our job is to do the maximum of the minimum. It's <laughs> a great phrase. You know, so you think about what's the minimum I got to do to, to, to make this job great, and I'm going to do just up to that. You know? He has great phrases, this guy. He's been working for like 30-some years. He constantly says, you know, work is like the post office. No matter how much you do today, there's always work tomorrow. You know, he says that to, to supervisors and stuff when they want to, you know, quantify how much work we do. He goes, this is the post office. There's going to be more to do tomorrow. Smart guy, man, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but that's not the way Paul's thinking. You know, the way my coworker's thinking, the way we all think, the way I even think, is that I'm trying to get the most out of this for me. I'll give you enough, but I'm trying to get the most for myself. But Paul says, I want to give you what I came to give you and more. I want to give you my life. I'm not here to take. I'm here to give. And verse 9, he ties it together. Initially, I was only going to use verse 9 to preach this entire sermon, but I couldn't escape the fact that Paul sets this up so well in this entire passage. Verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Here he's specifically talking about not just his missionary work of coming, preaching the gospel, serving uh, others. He's literally talking about physical work, financial independence. Paul, when he would show up in his missionary journeys, would provide for himself. Him and his companions would make tents or find other tasks, and they would provide financially. And he says the reason they did this, worked night and day, was so that they wouldn't be a burden to anyone. He didn't want to be a burden while he preached the gospel. Because I think Paul understood that the gospel itself is not a, a message of what we came to get or how important we are, but how important the other is. That if Paul had any, if at any moment he had an inkling of making demands, of pulling cards, of being a burden or, or, or trying to take from others, this would change the gospel narrative. It would change what the gospel meant. And so Paul was so committed to even financial independence that he wouldn't, because he did not want to be a burden. Because this is the gospel. This is the good news. That God is at work in the world and he lays himself down for others. That God, though he can make demands, does not make demands. That though God who has all power and all dominion and every right surrenders it all. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says that Jesus, having all these things, rights, and having all this dominion, lays it down, takes upon himself the form of a servant. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, it says. He, he lays down everything. He gives himself up for the sake of others. And Paul wants to be witness to that life. And I believe that humanity, if we're honest with ourselves, we want that too. We see opportunities to give or to be kind or to be generous or just to pour our life out. We, get in, we feel in kind of an impulse to do good, but something comes up in the way. We become afraid or insecure or wonder about what the other person's going to do or how they're going to receive it. We begin to work up, we begin to do what Paul says he doesn't want to do. Think of quantifying how, what am I getting out of this deal? And I believe the reason why we feel that desire to do good to others it's something one of my favorite theologians says, Justo Gonzalez, that we have a for-otherness about us. Justo Gonzalez, he uh, looks at the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, and he realizes that when it talks about man not being good alone, it's not talking about emotional or, or uh, like a romanticized idea of men and women needing to be together or needing a woman or needing a man. It's 
the words are, are gender neutral. It's strictly talking about how men, how humanity needs another person, not just for themselves, but so that they could work towards. He says the words are literally saying that they should be face to face towards one another. That when you consider that in, in the Genesis narrative, that humanity's relationship was never meant to be where one lorded it over another or one had power over another. No, he says that it was meant for us to be for one another. This is how he puts it in his book, Manana, which is a, a great book. He says the, subject of, of one human, the subjection of one human being to another is the result of sin, meaning that the first time you see people lording it over each other is after uh, the fall of man. And he, and he uses an idea that I, I didn't think about that. Up until that point, Adam names everything that he's supposed to have dominion over, and Eve has no name. It isn't until sin comes in that he names her and in a sense exerting some kind of power and dominion over her. And he says that that is a result of sin, that the desire to subject others or to be, have power over others or to, be, to have dominion or take advantage of others is an expression of sin. The creature, he says, male and female, that in the story of Genesis 1 was to have dominion over the rest of creation, was not to have dominion over its fellow human beings. Thus is the society of dominance born in which we are alienated from one another precisely because we seek to lord it over one another. In such a society, it is not the other, it's not only the other that is lost. We're all lost because we have lost our for otherness. That, and God has rightly said that it is not good for us to be for ourselves. Later on in that same book, Houston Gonzalez says that we actually dehumanize ourselves when we try to lord and exert power over others. That we're no longer human in a sense. We're no longer... Uh, uh, human because we dehumanize another. Once we dehumanize one person, we become dehumanized. He says that's how, the, that's how humanity is meant to be so in relationship to one another. We're no longer human. And we see this a lot in movies and in stories when we refer to someone who's uh, uh, just like, a, especially in comic books, I love comics, but especially in comics, you see like the villain is considered like a, a beast or an animal or not a man. He's considered wild and, and he's not a man. That's how they look at him because of this right here, because he's exerting his power and dominion and, and he cares less for other people. This isn't what humanity was meant to do. We were meant to be toward each other. And so when we get back to, to Paul, verse nine, that he does not desire to be a burden to anyone, it's because of this idea that God has made us for others. And the way we know this primarily is because God is for us. And so what Paul says to the Thessalonians is that all this that he's done, verse 10, he says, is that they're witnesses of them and God. You know, I've, I've grown up in the church and, and I've seen and I'm, I'm aware of, and I'm sure we all are, at some of the things that Christianity has done in the name of God that's shameful and hurtful. And we've done it as if the other person whom we've hurt or offended or taken advantage of isn't a witness. Paul says they are witnesses because they're the ones that are, we were supposed to be working for. Them and God are witnesses. And he says that all my, right, all my conduct, holy, righteous, and blameless, was toward you. It wasn't for himself. He wasn't exerting holiness and righteousness and blamelessness so that he could feel good about himself. It was for the sake of others. He was holy for the sake of others, blameless for the sake of others, righteous for the sake of others. He wanted to give them the benefit of all, of, all that he was working to do towards you. And because of that, he closes, you know, his, his, uh, this, this, this section with this, with this idea that 
This is why, he says, we've come so that you could hear the call of God. He says it like this, like a father with his child. He goes, we exhorted, encouraged, charged. He goes, we charge you to live in a manner worthy of God who calls you. The gospel is a message that's meant to be heard and that goes out into the world and it tells the world that God is calling them. He's calling them. And how he calls them is through our work. And our work, according to Paul, is one where we serve the other. But that's not easy. To serve the other means that I'm no longer living for my own interests. My self-interests are gone. My desire for self-preservation is gone. Rather, he says, live for others. Live for the preservation of others. Give all the same energy and time that you would give to yourself and your desires and exert that for others. But a fear creeps up in our heart. The same one that creeps up when we want to do good to others. It's if I do this, who's protecting me? And this is where I believe that God is speaking to us in our job. That when we see opportunities or in all our work, when we see opportunities to do good and that fear creeps up, God wants us to put that to death. Because his promise is that if we live for him, he'll live for us. That he'll become our joy, our strength. He'll become our righteousness. That he will become everything that we've been working so hard to achieve, working so hard to attain. You know, I find it so strange that we as human beings think that we can uh, manage and control our situation, that I'm the only one that, what's, the, what's that phrase people say? That I can't trust anyone but myself. Or I can't count on anyone but myself. But we fail ourselves all the time. Like, I find that so ironic. You know, me and my, watch, me and my wife have been watching uh, uh, the new season of Daredevil. No spoilers, I'm not going to spoil anything. <laughs> but there is a character who, no spoilers, there is a character who, uh, it's interesting that he needs to have structure in his life. And I was telling my wife that it's so funny that they designed a character who has to have a structured life in a world where there, there is no structure, where chaos is present, where things change, where you can't count on even yourself to keep yourself in check. And that's an interesting character. Like, what if a person needs this and, can't, and is present in a world where it doesn't exist? And that's us. I feel oftentimes we look at our life and we try to organize and structure it so that we can get the best result. But we live in a world where not only are we affected by others, but we're affecting others. This world doesn't have that consistency where we can rely upon ourselves. It's not easy to give ourselves up because of this preconceived notion that I'm the only one that can hold myself. The irony in the gospel is that God says, if you live your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life, you find it. Because if you live for him, he'll live for you. If you live for him, and what does it mean to have live for him? What does it mean for our work to display the glory of God in the service of others? It just means to serve others willfully, taking every opportunity and with all that we have. God isn't asking for us to do some incredible spiritual work. I knew growing up, that's what I thought that that the work that God was calling to was a spiritual work, you know, spending all my time in the church, serving every opportunity, every uh, event, every ministry. That's not what he's calling to us. I mean, that may be something you feel called to today. You want to help out, you want to support, and that's great. I do believe we should listen to that. But in the bare bones of what God is calling us to do and what Paul talks about living in a manner worthy of God in, in verse 12, isn't talking about specific things we should or should not do, although there may be things that may differ between us that we feel God calls to, but this underlying idea that we're not living for ourselves anymore, 
that when I go out to my job and when I go home and when I'm at any kind of work that I'm doing, that there will be opportunity to meet urgent needs. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. Paul and the other apostles constantly encouraging other Christians to do good work, meet urgent needs. This is how our work displays the glory of God. I want to invite the band up as I share one last uh, story. Um, I've been reading a book called Creativity, Inc., which is about the uh, story of Pixar Animation Studios. It's written by Ed Catmull, who's the president of, of both Disney and Pixar Animation. And in it, he talks about when Pixar was forming, how they wanted to form their identity, and they wanted to find out what their core was early on. And so uh, even though they had been about two movies in, they had come up with these mantras that were supposed to protect them and keep their work pure and keep their work passion-filled and driven, similar to how Paul talks about his work, the, the not in vain, the enduring much conflict, protecting our work. They had these mantras, story is king and trust the process. And people bought into them quickly. Their first two movies, Toy Story and A Bug's Life, great successes. You know, they were doing great work. But they noticed when they got to their third movie, which is Toy Story 2, that people had bought into these ideas so much that they'd bought it to them even at the expense of themselves. That their employees started to get burned out. And they weren't being honest about how much work it was because they felt that story was king. I have to, you know, give all that I have. I have to trust the process. So even if I'm stressed, I have to trust the process. And it wasn't until after the movie came out that they did some self-evaluation and they saw that there was real areas where people were only not dis disregarding their health, but even the safety of others. He tells one story in the book of, a, of an employee who was so burnt out, he forgot to drop his child off to work and left his child in the car in their parking lot. Thankfully, nothing, you know, the child wasn't well, was, wasn't, you know, too, uh, wasn't hurt or, or died. You know, they had called the ambulance, everything was okay, but it woke him up and he said, something's wrong. You know, are we, we haven't been, you know, we got these two mantras, but what's wrong? And it wasn't until he spoke to another movie studio executive, and they were talking about what matters the most, you know, in this field of, of creating movies. And the movie studio executive told them that what matters most is great ideas. He told them, great people, it's okay if you have people, but you need ideas. And Ed Catmull said that that woke him up because he thought, how ironic that ideas come from people. He says, and if ideas are so important and they come from people, he says, then people are more important than ideas that if we really say that we're passionate about our, these ideas, if we're really committed to you know, the, these, these, uh, live, this meaning, that living greater for ourselves, because then we're, we can't do it without the people. The people who come up with the story, said at Catmill, or, or the people who are working the process, we have to take care of them. And that radically changed the way he viewed Pixar. I mean, he did things like he no longer required contracts, which Disney, the Disney company was scared. How could you hire someone and not put them on a contract? And he said, because we want them to know that their creativity is free that they, he told them that they want to work here, not that they forced to work here, that they're not burdened. We want, we're here to serve them. And, they, and likewise, they'll give us the best work. Radical thinking. And, it, and when Disney and Pixar finally merged in 2005, they made Catmull president, and he wanted to test out this idea when he became president of Disney Animation Studios. And so he brought this philosophy of putting people first. And so when Disney had begun to kind of, because it was kind of dead for a while, it wasn't really producing the movies that they used to, when they finally started getting into a groove of things and they started making some more money, Cameron wanted to give bonuses out. And he thought it was easy. I could just deposit into their account and, you know, there's their bonus. But he, he wanted to do something different. So he got together with HR, with the other staff members, and they wrote personalized letters to each person, took a check, printed a check out, and they called a general meeting and, and of 800-plus employees. And each one, they called up and they shook their hand, they told them thank you. 
And he said that he did this because when he looked at people, he wanted to know that their work, he wasn't just grateful for their work, he was grateful for them. He was grateful for their lives. You know, he, create, he wanted to create an atmosphere where people were valued and important. That's gospel work. That's a work that reflects the glory of God. When we don't just look at the work we're doing and say, this work is important. If you don't wanna be a part of it, you know, move out the way. No, it says this work is important, but you are infinitely as important as this work. And I don't wanna do this work without you. That's what God's calling us to. That's where he wants us to die, to this fear of what if we lose the work or what if I get lost in the mix? God says he'll take care of us. Work for me, he says, and I will work for you. And how do we work for him? We do it for others. We take all our resources, all our strength, all our time, and we say what matters most to us, the people. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning that you're at work in the world and that the work you're doing is of laying yourself down. Your strength, your power, your dominion, you're submitting it all for the sake of others. Those whom you call, those whom you love. You didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Jesus. You gave your life, became a servant, laid it down. This is your glory. This is the story that is going to be told throughout the rest of human history, that God isn't a God who exerts his authority over others. In fact, he lays it down. And you've called us to the same work. I believe there's moments in our work where you point things out. Here's an opportunity to love and serve. Here's an opportunity to put your resources and your energy and your strength into to serving others, but we're afraid. Our insecurities are present. Sin is present, pride is present. God, I know you're calling us to die to these things, to trust in you, that if we live for you, you will indeed live for us, that you'll be our hope, our strength, that you'll be our wisdom, our knowledge, our righteousness. Everything that we've worked so hard to keep hold of, everything that we're working so hard to never lose, you're telling us to let it go, that you got us. So I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to die to those fears, die to the insecurity, to the pride, to listen to that call, and to trust. Just as you've put us first, that we would put others first so that they can see that the world does not merely work on relationships that seek to get the most out of others. But there's a God and there's a people who are laying their life down for the sake of others. And this there is great joy. And this you found great joy. Would you share that joy with us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.